Let's open up the Holy Scriptures to Hebrews chapter 12. Our text is verses 1 and 2 of the chapter, and let's now read Hebrews 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright, for ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more, 
for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touch the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But ye are come unto Mount Sion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. So far we read, let's reread verses 1 and 2 of the chapter. That's our text. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, our text tonight, Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, is a grand conclusion to Hebrews chapter 11. You children, some of you have probably memorized Hebrews 11, and so you're pretty familiar with what's found in this chapter. You have a whole list of saints people like Abel and Enoch and Abraham and Sarah and Moses as well as others. And what was true of these Old Testament saints is that they lived their lives by faith, by faith. They clung to the promises of God and yet they did not see those promises fulfilled in their lifetimes and now Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, which we consider this evening, is a conclusion to that 11th chapter. Our life 
is compared here to a race, a race. And if you think of the race as on a track, we are, as it were, surrounded in the stadium with these saints that are mentioned in Hebrews 11. We see their witness, their testimony that they have left behind, and we're cheered by that as we run our own race. Those to whom the book of Hebrews was written needed encouragement. They did. They were being persecuted, and in that persecution, they would be tempted to revert back to Judaism and to that whole bondage of the system of works righteousness. They were being tempted in their persecution to revert back to all of those things. And so he comes to them with encouragement, and he comes to them with the exhortation, Christians, keep on running the race. And it's not only those people a couple of thousand years ago that needed that sort of encouragement and that exhortation. You do too, and so do I, because the life that we live is difficult from many, many points of view. And we need that in the preaching, don't we? Sunday by Sunday, encouragement as we live this life here below. And the exhortation tonight, let us, us too, run the race. Running the race, that's our theme. Let's notice in the first place, the race. Second point, the encouragement. And then third, the possibility Christian life here is compared to a race. That's the metaphor that we have before us. Verse 1, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. These people in the original audience who would read this knew very well what a race was because... Of course, back in those days, you had the Greek Olympics. Maybe it would be a marathon, which was made up of many miles of running. Could be a shorter track race. But these people knew very well that which is spoken of here. And we're no less familiar with it for ourselves, too. We know what it is to run in a race. It's very familiar. Why is our life compared to a race? Simply this. Because just like running involves exertion and exhaustion and the sweat pours down the brow and the lungs are burning and sometimes the legs feel like jello, so the Christian life is exhausting it's difficult, agonizing in many ways. As with any earthly race, so also the spiritual race has two main elements that I want to call your attention to. The first main element that you would find in a race on earth, that's also true of the spiritual one, is that it has 
a track to it. A path, a road that is run upon, a track. That track, of course, is the Christian life. It has its starting line at regeneration, which we heard about this morning, to be born again, given that spiritual life. Starting line, regeneration. Finish line of the race is glory. When the Lord Jesus Christ takes us to heaven to be with him there. You notice that this track has been laid out by God. That's the end of verse 1. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. God is the one who has set it down. From eternity, he has in his sovereign counsel or plan determined exactly what your race would look like. With every dip and turn and thorn and valley and mountaintop, every single aspect about it, he determined all of that. He's laid down that racetrack, if you will. That's already so comforting, isn't it? A lot of surprises in our life. A lot of things we never would have ever anticipated would happen to us. You've probably had some of those events. I never would have guessed my life would be like this. But there are no surprises for God. He's laid it all out. He's mapped it out from before the foundation of the world. We can say also about this track that it is difficult. That word race, the Greek word for that is where we get our English word agony. If you were to read the Greek word, it would pop out to your ear, agony. And that's because that's what this race is. And that's exactly why he talks about patience here. Patience is required as we run down the track of this life exactly because it has so many trials, so many burdens, dips and thorns and dark, dark valleys, agony. As with any earthly race, so that with the spiritual one, the first main element is a track. The second main element that's common to both is that a race has runners. It has runners. Those runners are mentioned in verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Those pronouns indicate the runners who sprint down the track. In the original audience that was written to here, these were persecuted Hebrew Christians. As I indicated briefly in the introduction, they were tempted to forsake the race, and they're exhorted here, keep on running. So you might say, they are the runners. But we may also say this. Those who sprint down the racetrack of the Christian life are 
the church, the body of Jesus Christ. Notice in the verse, it speaks of a group, not an individual, and not individuals sort of haphazardly scattered about that happen to be running together. A group, cohesive, the body of Jesus Christ. And that too is so encouraging and comforting already because it means that you don't run alone. Wouldn't that be a dreadful thing? Going down the racetrack of this life all by yourself, you don't. You're with a whole host of other people running shoulder to shoulder with you toward the finish line. And who are those people? Here. These are your fellow runners. That's a beautiful thing. You could say as well that those who go down the racetrack, these runners, are the elect. We're just saying the same thing as the church, the body of Christ. You can also say the elect. God has not only determined what the racetrack will be for each of us. He's laid that out too, as we established a few moments ago. He's also determined the runners on that racetrack in his eternal decree of election in Jesus Christ. The elect are those who run. You can also say that those who sprint down this path are those who have been given the gift of faith. Those who have been united to Jesus Christ so that they are one with him by that bond of faith and having been united to him, they're strengthened to run down the racetrack as they ought. But also that bond of faith becomes activity so that the text says, and we'll come back to this later, they look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith. That looking, which is the looking of faith. The runners are those who have been given the gift of faith. Now he exhorts you and me, let us run that race. Let us run it. If you want an illustration in your mind, a physical earthly race, then you can think of it this way. Not someone who's walking as down a sidewalk. Not even someone who's at a light jog going down the road, but we're talking about someone who is at an all-out dead sprint forward, pressing on as fast as he can go, a sprint. And now think of that spiritually running, running the race. That obviously doesn't mean children, does it, that we go out of church and running the race of the Christian life is that we run to our car as fast as we can. We're not talking about physically here, but this. To run that race means we live our lives by faith. And now you see the connection to Hebrews chapter 11. That's why I say running is living our lives by faith. 
When you read Hebrews 11, there is a refrain, is it there? By faith, so-and-so did this. By faith, so-and-so did that. Happens all the time in that chapter, by faith. Faith is trust in God. It's a conviction of things that these eyes in our head cannot see, but the spiritual eye of faith sees these invisible things. To live our lives by faith is to do the things that we do week by week and day by day, but to do them with our spiritual eye focused upon our God and trusting in Him and looking to the Lord Jesus Christ who is our Savior. To run is to live our lives by faith. Running the race also means living in submission to the will of God. I say that because, again, if you look back at Hebrews 11, that comes out. Let me give you an example. Verses 24 to 26, we read about Moses here. And it says, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Moses had it all. He's the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. And early in his life, remember the history, he lives in that palace. Can you imagine the kind of life of luxury that was? And the sort of opportunities, educationally, especially that he had in his future, and yet, in submission to the will of God, what does he do? He goes and lives among those Hebrew slaves in their misery outside the palace and in all of their affliction. That meant sacrifice for Moses. That was very difficult, and yet he knew he needed to submit to the will of God. And when it comes to our lives, submission to God's will also will be difficult and will require much sacrifice. When marriage becomes tough, but I've made a vow. And when the rearing of children becomes something that is very, very difficult, but I've made a vow at their baptism, Keeping of our vows, beloved, is difficult. It requires much sacrifice. Think of financially, a Christian school, a church, the things of the kingdom of God, the support of our family. It's going to mean oftentimes we're stretched very thin. It's going to mean pain in certain ways. And yet we submit to the will of God that's running the race. Running the race will mean that we suffer persecution. Again, if you go back to Hebrews 11, verse 26, talks about esteeming the reproach of Christ. Moses, ma, Moses, persecuted. And although there are many parts of the world in which persecution is far more severe than it is here, there is a soft persecution, and it will increase as the days go on. 
And it's exactly because there's persecution. It's exactly because the race is so agonizing and requires so much sacrifice and is difficult that he talks about patience here in verse 1, a, a, a kind of steadfastness in our running. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Unmoved, steady running forward. Not only exhorts us to run, but the manner in which we run is important too. It says this, middle of verse 1, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. A weight is anything that is an encumbrance to us. A weight is anything that is an impediment to our running that hinders us in some way as we go down the track. If you were at an earthly race and you saw a man come up to the starting line and he had heavy boots and snow pants and a big puffy winter jacket, you'd look at that man and you'd say, what are you doing? You're supposed to be running a race and you've got boots and snow pants and a big coat on. You need to take those things off and then run the race. You're going to be weighted down. Same principle for the spiritual race. There are things that weigh us down. What is that for you? Is it, beloved, that the treasures of this world have somewhat of a hold on our homes? We live in a country of so much prosperity. We do have good incomes. There's so much that money can buy. Has worldliness, to a certain extent, made its inroads into our homes and what we're doing and how we're entertaining ourselves? Think of just one example. Our phone. How much time is this little rectangle taking in my life? What am I looking at on my phone? How easily my life can be so absorbed with this little thing and with the things of this world. Is there something in your life and in mine that is slowing down our race? That's a weight. A specific kind of weight is what verse 1 says, the sin which doth so easily beset us. Besetting sin is literally sin which encircles someone. And so there's a sticky, thick, silky spider web in the corner of a room, and a fly makes its way to that corner and goes into that web, and what does that web do? It goes around and around and encircles that fly. That's what besetting sin 
is like there are some sins that especially have a power to control our mind. And then I'll ask you, as I ask myself tonight again, is there something in your life that's a besetting sin? Something that you feel encircles, something that you are even daily tempted to. That's a part of this exhortation. He says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. What's the manner of our running this race? Putting those things constantly aside, just like that man will take off his boots and shed his snow pants and throw his coat to the side, so also anything that impedes my running and also any sin which would encircle me, I must renounce that by the grace of God. Put it aside, put it off, and let us run with a wholehearted devotion and dedication empowered by the Lord Jesus Christ. We need encouragement for that, for sure. Part of that encouragement is given at the beginning of verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside and let us run. Those witnesses there are Old Testament saints, the ones that are mentioned right before this in Hebrews 11. People like Enoch and Abel and Abraham and Sarah and Moses and so on. Those are the witnesses but those witnesses really include any believer who has already been taken to glory. And that makes it very personal and beautiful because these witnesses include also believing loved ones we know, grandpa, grandma, father, mother, brother, sister, whom the Lord has already taken to glory. They're called witnesses, and for good reason, some people interpret this to mean they are in heaven and they are looking down on us and they are witnessing the life we are living. That interpretation of, that, of this text is wrong. Witnesses here rather means this, that the lives that they have lived are an example or a testimony to us. And that we look at the lives that they've lived, their testimony, their example. And that's, a, that's an encouragement for us as we run the race. They're called here a great cloud of witnesses. Just like a puffy cloud floating in the blue sky has millions and millions and millions of water droplets and ice crystals. So there is a cloud, a, a whole mass of witnesses. We're, as it were, on the track in a stadium, and they are seated all around us in the stadium, and we are able to look at them as we run, 
and be encouraged by their testimony that they've left behind. And so here you are, running. You're coming to a bend in the road in your life. What's next? And we never know what's going to come even the next minute in our life. I know that. But there are some times where things are very, very uncertain. And maybe some of you are there today. What is my future? And we look at that with a great deal of concern. But then we look. Look over there in the grandstands. There's Abraham. And we read of his testimony that's left for us here in Hebrews 11 that he went about not knowing where God was leading him, but he walked by faith. You're in a point of your running that you're tempted to doubt the promises of God. And if we're all honest tonight, then probably all of us could say, yes, there have been times in my life where I did doubt God's promises and I really struggled in that regard. But look, there's Sarah, as it were, in the stadium. And we look at the example left behind and testimony of Sarah in Hebrews 11, about whom it says she judged God faithful who promised to give her seed. And then sometimes when we feel unable to go even one more step. It's such labor and such exhaustion. And my life right now is so filled with trials and agony. And we remember that believing loved one that God has already taken to glory, their life, their testimony, how they loved the Lord and they walked by faith. And we're cheered by that as we run the race that God has given to us. You see why these witnesses that have gone before are such an encouragement? They've already run the race. Now, sometimes we can think to ourselves, I'm the first one to have run this race, and my life is entirely unique. No one has gone through this set of circumstances. May be true that no one has gone through specifically what you've gone through, but they've gone through generally the same things. And they've run this race before us, not only, but they know what those valleys are, and they know the thorns on the path and the sharp bends and all the trials and afflictions of the way. They've already gone before us. There's something encouraging there. I'm not the first one to have run this way. But especially the encouragement comes from this. They've gone down the track. And they've crossed the finish line. And they're in glory. And I know too that at the end of my race, as long and as weary as it may seem, there is a finish line. And the Lord will take me up to glory, just like he did for them. That's encouragement. But in this race, we are especially 
encouraged by Jesus himself who ran his own race. Verse 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus ran a race. For him, the starting line was the incarnation. When the Son of God took to himself flesh, and he ran. And all the way from Bethlehem, through his boyhood years, to his adolescent years, and years as a teenager, and then as an adult, and finally he enters into his public ministry, all that time he suffers under the wrath of God for our sins, coming, pouring down upon him that is an agonizing, extremely difficult race until finally, at the end of his public ministry, he descends into a deep, dark, gloomy valley that we cannot even imagine when he hung upon the cross. Not even the physical pain can we imagine? But to have, especially and in a concentrated way there at Calvary, the wrath of God is a great burden pouring down upon him as a waterfall to have hell come to him. The torments, the pains, the anguish, the inexpressible agonies of that suffering there for our sins. Jesus knew, according to verse 1, he knew, verse 2 rather, shame. Shame is pain associated with guilt and humiliation. The shame that Jesus knew, of course, was not associated with his own guilt because he did not have any of his own guilt, but the shame associated with the sins of his people that were imputed to him. And now think of that. He's the sin bearer. And what do they do to him? Mock him. Slander him. Take that sharp, piercing crown of thorns and press it upon his head and make the blood flow down. They even take his clothes, divide his garments, so that he hangs on the cross entirely or close to entirely naked. That is deepest shame. Text says here he endured the cross all through his life from the cradle and onward. He never went to the right. He never went to the left. But straight on, he went toward the cross with a steady running. And even when he was hanging there on the cross, refused to come down even though he was tempted to come down, but he stayed there and he suffered in patience until all the suffering was entirely complete. 
And it even says here, he despised the shame of the cross, which means he thought little of it. He did not regard it because Jesus knew that the finish line was close and that the glory that he was going to have, such a heavy weight of glory, what is this shame compared to what was coming? He despised, he thought little of that shame. He pressed toward the goal. There's the finish line. There's the glory that the Father has promised. There's where the joy is. And he pressed toward that constantly. He never was distracted by anything. You know, when the devil came to Jesus and tempted him, what was Satan trying to do there? He was trying to get Jesus to leave the race. And doesn't this look good? Doesn't this look alluring for Jesus to go off here or to go off there? That's what the temptations were. Constantly, he headed toward the goal and he reached it. He reached it. Verse 2 says that he now sits at God's right hand, suffering crucified, risen, ascended, Lord Jesus Christ sits down at the right hand of the throne of God. He has all authority and he has all power enthroned above all things, the exalted, honored Lord Jesus Christ. Do you notice that? He sits at the right hand of the throne of God rest after his agonizing race. That's the finish line for Christ. And that's an encouragement for us. Be careful here. The race that Jesus ran is different than the one we do. You and I don't atone for sin. We don't come under the wrath of God and suffer under that. Thanks be to God, and that's our comfort. So the races are different in that way. And yet, he experienced agony. So do we. He kept his eye on the goal, as we must. And the end for him was glory, as it will be for us. It's to this Jesus that we look as we run our race. In him is the strength, the possibility for this running. When I was in high school running cross country, the thing that the coach said quite often was, you boys, look up look ahead and focus on that finish line that's coming. And what you were not supposed to do is run sort of looking down or looking at yourself and certainly not getting distracted by things all around you. Look ahead, look up. There's a goal in mind. 
That's what we have here. Verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. This looking is the looking of faith. It's certainly true. We are united with Christ by the bond of faith. We're one with him, and that's a beautiful and comforting idea too. But what flows out of that bond is the activity of faith, and that's what this looking is. Jesus is the author of that faith. He ran his own race, and by that agonizing race that he ran, the lowest depth was at the cross, by his own race, he purchased for us this faith. And by his spirit, he works it in us. He strengthens it week by week and day by day. He's the author of it. But he's also the finisher. He brings that faith to the goal. And he does that when he makes our faith sight. Won't that be a day, beloved, when by the grace of God he brings us across that finish line as he will, the finisher of our faith. And he makes what was invisible to us before something that we very really see, that we are in glory. And there he is the Lord Jesus Christ himself in all of his beauty in all of his glory and his radiance and to be able to see and delight in him forever and ever and ever. That will be a day, won't it? We run with the eye of faith upon Jesus in ourselves we have no strength to sprint. We don't. And of ourselves, we have no power to take that weight and those besetting sins and to cast them away from us. We don't look to ourselves. Don't ever, beloved, look at yourself. Don't try to look inside for some strength that you think you might find there. And don't find, don't try to find that strength in the things of this world and all that surrounds this racetrack. We look to Christ alone. That's the one in whom is all of our strength for this race. And he provides that power, that grace, that strength in abundant measure. He does. Let us look to him, not with a few glances now and again, not with a quick look, but the entirety of our race fixed upon him, him, amen. Father in heaven, we pray for that strength which is in Jesus Christ. Grant unto us that grace and abundance. Father, cheer us 
along this difficult and even agonizing way. Cheer us with those witnesses, those testimonies, and those examples that thou hast set before us on the pages of Scripture. Especially cheer us by the Lord Jesus Christ who ran his own race. We thank thee for his finished work. We thank thee for his preserving grace, bringing us one day according to thy will across the finish line. Strengthen, Lord, our hope regarding that day and give to us, even on this Sabbath evening, a joyous foretaste of that glory which is to come. Bless thy word unto our hearts. Keep us from sin for Jesus' sake. Amen.